passage this morning is from the book of Isaiah, if you'd like to turn there with me. We'll be starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. The word of God says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, on the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with, righteous, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for yet another Lord's Day and the opportunity to hear from your word during this Advent season. We pray that through Dan's voice this morning, you would surely bring about an increase in our Lord's government and an increase of his peace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, for the third week, we'll be here now for our Advent series in Isaiah, The Weary World Rejoices. Context, if you remember, Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom of Israel is facing threats from all around them. Isaiah's prophecy was some 700 years before the birth of Christ, around the time that Assyria was moving in to the northern tribes, about 130, 140 years before Babylon is going to come into the southern tribes, and Isaiah warns about both. Ahaz, king in the southern tribes, as he sees Assyria moving in, as he sees nations growing up and powers all around them and, and Israel, the northern tribes succumbing to Assyria, Judah feeling all alone, starts to look everywhere for help. Isaiah warns, turn to God, look to God, he will be your help, he will be your protector. Ahaz and by his influence the people do not do that, and they turn everywhere. They look to ally with Assyria. They look to ally with other nations. We see by the end of chapter 8, they're turning to, to, to sorcery, to magicians, to all kinds of things to find hope, to find help. And because of that, they find themselves sinking into deeper and deeper darkness, shrouded in gloom and anguish, the darkness only thickening around them. As they walk into the years of silence. And every human attempt to, to bring light has failed. It's only led to deeper darkness. 
think the same would be true for us as we look at our age, as we turn further and further from God, and we look to find meaning and purpose and, and, and <clears throat> hope other places than in God. It just leads to deeper and deeper darkness. Indeed, darkness is around us. And yet, in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of this anguish, in the middle of this gloom, is a promise of hope. That the unbelief of the people, that that the waywardness of their heart cannot defeat the purposes of God. Indeed, he is stronger than our hearts. And we see the zeal of the Lord will bring our salvation. The zeal of the Lord will bring our salvation by his sheer grace. That becomes a theme that we see emerging out of this text. The zeal of the Lord will do it. That's how it ends. That's how our passage ends. God is active. God is at work. We cannot save ourselves. In fact, we we can't even add anything, any help to saving ourselves. God himself has to enter into our existence to save us, and he is going to do it. In the darkness, we cannot find light apart from God, and he is going to become the God-man to enter into our darkness and into our plight. God is zealous. One author, commentator, said as much as we think of gentle Jesus, meek and lowly, we can also think of zealous Jesus, bold and brave. That indeed, as we think that that word that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do, the zeal, the same word used in, in Proverbs to talk about a husband's jealousy or zeal for his wife. It's used in Song of Solomon to talk about a bride and a groom, their, their passion for one another. Jesus is in the Gospel of John as he flips the tables and runs out the money changers. They remember the prophecy about him that the zeal for the house of God will consume him. Indeed, even as we've looked at Mark, if you remember, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and we left off right at the end of chapter 10. Jesus heading into Jerusalem for Passion Week. On his way, and his focus, his passion, his zeal for the mission of God is such that the two reactions of everyone around him is that they are amazed or terrified. And we see God's love for us, that God is zealous for our salvation, for our rescue, and for his glory. So much so that he will take on human form and enter into time and space, enter into our plight. And so what you have before you is really a great reversal. That's what Isaiah shows us. We'll work through it here at a good pace. But that's what Isaiah shows us, is a a great reversal. Isn't that what the Advent is about, that, that he has come to reverse the curse? That all that is broken, all that is wrong, Christ has come to set right, to make right in reversing the curse, restoring our fellowship to God. 
in Advent. That is what we look back in, rejoice at the first Advent, and we look forward to and anticipate and long for is this great reversal. So three ways that we see the reversal taking place. First, in this great reversal, there is glory in the place of gloom. There is glory in the place of gloom. Look at verse 1. There will be no more gloom for, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. We've emphasized this a couple times, but almost every telling of the Christmas story does emphasizes sort of the unexpected hum- humbleness, the humility of Christ's birth in Galilee, a nowhere town. In the middle of nowhere, you would think he's going to arrive in Jerusalem, right? The epicenter of, of religion where everything takes place. But no, in Galilee. Galilee is in the, the northern border of Israel. So kind of almost a little bit forgotten as they're pushed up there in the north. And it's a mix of people that live there. You'll see that Galilee of the nations is how it's referred to. But it could be also called Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it has some Hebrews People, but it also has Mesopotamian and Canaanites and Hittites. There's a, there's a mix of people. And people, especially invading armies, when they're coming in to Israel, that's where they pass through. Galilee is not a destination, but often people pass through it. And as those armies pass through it, Galilee, almost forgotten up there with little defense, you can imagine that they know their share of pain and gloom and anguish, and slavery, and bondage. And yet it's out of this very place that God will send his rescue. It's out of this very place that the glory of the Lord will come. And so we see from Galilee will come a king, and where Ahaz the king has been a failure, and where all the kings after him have, and the bringing judgment upon his people in the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son, from the root of Jesse, one who is obedient and faithful, he is coming and bringing that reversal that where there was gloom, there will be glory. Secondly, where there is joy or where there was anguish, there will now be joy. Joy in the place of anguish. We see that again in verse 1. There was gloom for her in anguish. That's how, how chapter 8 ends. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Early in chapter 8, you see why. It's because God's presence has passed from them. The light of his face has passed from them and left them in darkness. Instead of his divine benediction shining upon them, it's his divine malediction, as it were. And he has passed over them and is left in darkness and there is gloom and there is anguish. But in verse 3 you see, but you have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So that the announcement uh, the angels bring For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all people. 
the reversal that takes place at the advent of Christ when the promised king comes is that anguish turns to joy for all people, to the nations. It's an expansive kingdom. That's what the end of the chapter tells us, or the end of our text in in verse 7 tells us. It's a kingdom that will have no end, that will expand. We see how this joy is experienced in verse 3, a a little bit clearer. It says, they rejoice before you, one with as joy, as with joy at the harvest. Secondly, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. That that is, the, the joy will affect nature, the natural world, their circumstances, their day to day life. Messianic day promises deliverance in our circumstances. You see that in the curse. Just the toil, the fruitlessness that work can bring, the hardships of daily circumstances. At the advent of Christ, that toil, that, that anguish will be turned to joy. Not that there won't be any more work or labor, but exactly who we were created to be as creative people and cultivators will do that with perfect joy. And then you see joy in dividing the spoils. That is more the idea of freedom from our oppressor, freedom from opposition, freedom in the battle. So we find joy both in a cosmic sense, joy in a circumstantial local sense, joy in the place of anguish. And finally, thirdly, there'll be light in the place of darkness light in the place of darkness. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Deep darkness there is it's a compound word. It's really death's shadow. Bringing darkness, death together. Again, that, that's where we ended in, verse, in chapter 8 and verse 22. They are in distress, they are in darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But on them a light will shine. Light will come and the darkness will not overcome it. God's presence is equated with light. It always has been. We see it in his arrival in John 1. The light has come in. The darkness will not overcome it. We see it in Revelation. At his second advent, there'll be no need for the sun. That's just a placeholder for the true light, the Lamb of God. He will be its light. And so in Advent season, we look backwards and we we see at the coming of Christ, this is the reality This is the truth, is that that anguish is replaced with joy, that gloom is replaced with glory, that darkness is replaced with light. And that's our reality that we live in right now. And yet, we also live in the reality of a broken world, in anticipation of the second advent, when we see the consummation, the fulfillment of all of this. All right, so this is the great reversal. 
And then the rest of the text lies, lays out for us what brings about then this great reversal. And you have three clauses, four, verses 4, 5, and 6, each start with four, the word for. And it's kind of a, a foundational, a because clause. So there'll be a great reversal. We've seen what that reversal is. Because of verse 4. And then even underneath of that, a, a greater foundation because of verse 5. And then under that, even a more solid foundation because of verse 6. So it's kind of builds. So, <clears throat> verse 4, we see, there will be light, glory, and joy because all oppression will cease. Because all oppression will cease. You see that there, for the yoke of his burden, that, that is the, the idea of the real suffering that we experience. The staff for his shoulder, that is <clears throat> the opposition the evil that we face, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Remember the day of Midian? Referring back to Gideon, God's warrior there, as God sovereignly takes Gideon and, and dwindles down his army to 300 men. And they take on the massive invasion of the Midianites. <clears throat> and God causes confusions that the Midianites basically defeat themselves and Gideon and the army are victorious over the oppressor. This is the work of God. He is the liberator. Liberator from our oppression. Secondly, there, there will be light and glory and joy because all oppression will cease because all warfare will end. All warfare will end. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It speaks there to the ceasing, the end of war. But, but if you look at it, what's really taking place is that a battle has taken place and we've never even entered the battle. It is God who is fighting for us. It is Jesus Christ who has come and he has entered the battlefield so that, that our garments that we use for war, our boots, they're just thrown as, as fuel in the fire. That the wars will cease. It will come to an end. It's not just a continual battle and a continual struggle. When Christ returns at his second advent, there is victory and the war ceases forever. We think of this opposition in this warfare first on a cosmic level, on a big level that, that when you think of, of books like Daniel or Revelation, you pull back the curtain and you see the spiritual warfare that is taking place. In the oppression, and the opposition, you think of this sort of cosmic oppression that comes from the fall. Of wars and battles that, that rage. We were just talking with someone a couple days ago and talking about there's almost never been a time in history where there's not some sort of battle raging. Where the selfishness of, of men and the, the envy of men rise up in them to see all kinds of evil committed. 
This is the age we live in. Of uh, this sort of oppression and this sort of, uh, this sort of darkness where the poor are abused and misused by the powerful and the wealthy in order to get ahead. Where annually hundreds of billions of dollars made on, on human trafficking and sex slavery of, of, of young girls. When you think of the millions who, who are killed, taken from the womb and aborted in a culture of, of death that just persists. And now we've moved to a place from where, yeah, it happens to a place where people celebrate it. And you see the darkness, you see the oppression. And on a cosmic level, the promise here is yes, there is gloom, there is anguish. Jesus Christ assures the victory. We long and we anticipate and we look forward to when he consummates that victory. But then it also happens on a, a more personal level as well. Not just a cosmic level, but a personal level. The, your own wrestle and struggle with sin. With anxiety, with depression, with whatever it might be in your life. Ephesians would tell us even in our own lives you draw back the curtain and we wrestle not against flesh and blood it's not just your boss it's not your neighbor it's not your relative but but against evil and darkness and principalities that's where the warfare really is taking place is in the heart and the promise of this reversal is not just that Jesus you know hopes it will be better no he promises it will end Oppression will end because the war will end. And what is the grounds for all of that? Verse 6. There will be light, glory, and joy because all oppression will cease, because all warfare will end, because to us a child is born. And to us a son is given. Again, the unexpected the surprising, the humble answer is this little child from a no-name town to a young teenage virgin mother born in a feeding trough. Poor family. Heads of state don't come crowding around him when he's born. No, it's the lowly shepherds that come. But in this obscurity, you have the greatest one to ever be born into this world. In this weakness, you have infinite almighty power and strength. In this servility, you have the greatest king of kings and lord of lords to ever live. We've talked about this, this child, this humble beginning that today millions and millions around the world gather to praise and to worship this king. So when we look back to that point in time, that point in history, when a little child was born in a manger, that right there is God becoming man. That is God entering our plight. That is God rescuing us from the darkness, from the oppressor. That is God ending all warfare. That is what we look back to. 
Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts would do this. How zealous is he? How passionate is he for your salvation, for the mission of God laid out for you, his love for you, that he would come and take on human form to be born in this way. What we've seen in the past, if his wisdom, this is not the wisdom of man, this is the wisdom of God for us. And so when we look back to Advent some 2,000 years ago and celebrate it, we see this is the foundation to all of these promises of the end of oppression, the end of warfare, to a total reversal of darkness, gloom, and anguish, to light and joy. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and he is the God-man. It says the government will be upon his shoulders. We've seen earlier, we can't shoulder it ourselves. We've seen the staff of our shoulder that we need to be rescued from. But here the government will be upon his shoulders We won't be reliant on dishonest, short-sighted politicians promising us something. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He will establish a kingdom that will never end, that will expand and keep on expanding. That's what it says there. The increase, verse 7, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. All that is good, all that is right. When from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. And he's given four titles and we'll close with this. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. That is the idea of supernatural counselor. That he has wisdom that is is from above. Perfect wisdom. So that in him there is no confusion, there is no darkness, there is no doubt. That idea of counselor, that, that he is wise, he's, he's from above, but he, he, he brings it into your life. He, he provides the comfort, provides the guidance, provides the counsel that is needed. An answer to all of our questions, truth amid all the idle speculations of this world. So he's a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. We sang about it. A lot of Christmas songs will have it, that juxtaposition of a baby and that that sort of helpless hand reaching for its mother and at the same time holding every atom of the universe together. That, That infinite power rests in that child in a manger. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, What does it mean that Jesus is the everlasting Father? One, he's a source of all creation, and yet he was born. He relates to us uh, as unlovely as we are in our sin, as with the love of a father for his child, a love that will not let us go. 
but we can think of it that in, in Jesus Christ, the Father comes running to us, the prodigal son, to welcome us home. That in Jesus Christ, the Father demonstrates his love towards us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would lay down his life for us. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. And finally, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the Shalom there's a piece that speaks about how things ought to be. He, he embodies peace. He is our peace. And he presides over a realm that is ruled and characterized by peace. And we know that peace from the first advent. We can experience it right now. Because he is our king. That was the declaration at the birth of Christ. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. In the midst of your confusion as a wonderful counselor, he can provide you peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of everything that doesn't make sense, he brings peace, he brings that shalom. But we look forward to that perfect, everlasting rest, don't we? When he comes and offers that perfect peace you enter that eternal perfect rest he is the prince of peace when we think of the advent of Jesus Christ in this text especially we think a child is born son is given but what rests on that a total reversal of everything all oppression ending, all war ceasing, and a reign of peace for us. Let's take a moment, pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it speaks into our lives. Lord, we rejoice in the sun. Lord, the wondrous mystery we sang about earlier. Come to save us from our sins. We thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We look forward, Lord, to the resurrection that we will share in. Lord, help us now to live in the light, to find joy, to find peace now. Lord, in the hope of it to come. I'll give you just a moment of quiet thoughtfulness as you think about God.